Good morning, everyone. My name is Josh Kazali. It is Monday, February 6th here in New York City. Uh, it's now about 8.35. Uh, it's a cold one. It's about 30 degrees right now. Uh, you're, of course, listening to Monday Morningside, WKCR's Variety News Show, bringing you the latest and greatest from Columbia University, Morningside Heights, and New York City. My name is Josh Kazali, and I'm live from 114th and Broadway. We have a great show for you today. Excited to bring it to you. Um, we just completed our Phil Schapp Memorial broadcast from the 2nd and 3rd of February. As I'm sure you're aware, he was a true legend of radio. Uh, thanks to everyone who tuned into that. It was a lot of fun to broadcast, and um, we miss him every day. As Phil so kindly alluded to in that clip you just heard in his uh, archival broadcast, uh, February is Black History Month, um, which is important to recognize. Uh, in my first segment, I spoke to Anique Edwards, who's a junior at Barnard, who is the vice president of the Society of Black Arbis, Artists, or SOBA. This group was formed by Tini, Timmy Odunjo, who is uh, also a junior at Columbia. I actually had the pleasure of working with Timmy on a short film uh, last semester. Uh, Anique and I talked about the purpose of the group and how it's found its place on campus, uh, a, a realm of many clubs. Uh, here is that interview now. I'm here with Anique Edwards, who is a junior at Barnard and is the co-vice president of the Society of Black Artists. How are you doing, How are you doing today, Anique? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, my first question is just, I want to know a little bit about yourself, um, you know, what your art is, um, and I guess what drew you to be a part of this club? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you said, I'm a junior at Barnard and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I started doing art really young as a kid. So I would always go to first Saturdays at the Brooklyn Museum with my family and they offered art uh, classes for kids of different ages. So I started doing my first set of art classes at the Brooklyn Museum, I wanna say around like age eight. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I continue doing art throughout middle school and high school, um, doing IB art in high school, and I guess uh, sending in some submissions to different, I guess, sort of publications here and there. Um, the art that I focus on is like mixed media, so I kind of like to play with acrylic paint and also mm. just like random pieces. I think I was really into collaging during my high school, I guess, career in art. So picking up leaves from like the sidewalks and whatnot. Um, and I'm also a poet. I do spoken word poetry. Awesome. Um, so. First of all, what is the Society of Black Artists? I mean, from your perspective, um, you know, what what is it all about? It's a great question. So um, Society of Black Artists, or SOBA, um, it was founded by Timmy, who's a junior at Columbia mm -hmm. College. And essentially for his vision, he wanted um, a space where art can sort of meet identity. I think often um, at places, Columbia has a lot of clubs uh, with diverse offerings, but what you'll often see are either sort of like affinity-based clubs and then like interest-based clubs. So sort of like maybe like a black affinity club and then like an art club, but there was no intersection. And I think like with SOBA, it's sort of a space for an intersection, you know, to exist because obviously I think identity can inform a lot of, I guess, your creations in art. Um, so SOBA is essentially a place for that, specifically for like people of like the black diasporic, um, I guess, background. And so far, um, we've just wanted to sort of create a space for people who, yes, are into artistic expression, but also want to incorporate identity and identity, um, I guess, politics in a way into that. Yeah, I think that idea of the intersection between those affinity clubs and those um, interest clubs is really interesting. Uh, and you said that this is really like the first of its kind in that way. Yeah, definitely the first of its kind in that way. Um, I guess like it went sort of like publicly active last semester, so mm -hmm. we're still um, workshopping a lot of things, but it is the first offering um, at Columbia, which is interesting, um, you know, given I guess the concept isn't necessarily like radically new, but yeah, um, yeah it's been fun working towards that. Yeah. Um, so at what, what stage in the process did you become involved um, as the co-vice president? Yeah. So I, I was introduced to SOBA. I knew Timmy personally before mm -hmm. that, but... I was introduced to SOBA um, formally at one of its first, I guess, meetups in the fall semester, fall 2022, um, in November, and I signed up. I scanned, like, the QR code for mm -hmm. eBoard Interest, and I was just speaking to Timmy, and then sort of after, I guess, 
communicating communicating to him what I was interested in. Um, we kind of settled on like vice president's position. Um, so this semester, I've mainly been focusing on like paperwork, getting petitions to make you know help recognize SOBA as a club, and making sure that SOBA, I guess the concept of it can exist even long after we're gone. So mm. definitely, um, I've been involved. I got involved through that way, and that's kind of like the main things that I focus on. And I know Timmy, of course, is the president and founder. He kind of like spearheads division, and um, I guess it's like my job to sort of like help support that. I guess from every angle, so like paperwork wise, but also right. just like logistically and things like that. Yeah, that idea of trying to carry on a club's legacy past its conception, past its like first body of people, I think is really interesting. How do you approach that? Um, in trying to preserve the space, not just for you and your uh, fellow students when you're here, but for st future students? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, this is the first club where I've sort of like been involved of as like a founding like member or founding mm -hmm. board. Um, I think definitely taking some of my previous experiences, although I'm not on student government anymore, I was um, uh, vice president communications for Barnard Student Government. So I definitely took like a lot of like my organizing skills from that, I guess, and, and also knowledge from that into knowing what it takes to get a club recognized and things like that to sort of work towards that. And I think to specifically answer your question of just like leaving a legacy, I think, you know, it's really important that I guess students here, black and brown students sort of like have a space where it's like they feel like they can create things that last long um, beyond them. Um, I think like at a predominantly white institution, it's nice right. to have some legacy at that institution that isn't necessarily coming from a predominantly white, I guess, perspective. The club sort of began uh, last semester. I read this in the spe Spectator article, which was just released about uh, SOBA. And it was initially Writer's Block Wednesdays and uh, open mic nights. What was the atmosphere like in the beginning uh, when it was just just beginning? Yeah, I mean, we're on, we're on our way to getting recognized. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. But I guess like at the beginning, like definitely kind of what you said is very spot on, like loose in regards to sort of like some of the things that we planned were kind of like, I guess, visions. Like we envisioned like, I guess, spaces where people could share, but we didn't know what to call it. We also didn't know what days to have it on. We didn't want to have it at times as other, I guess, like affinity-based clubs because we wanted to give people the option to still go to those clubs but also mm. have like time in their schedule to come to SOBA. So I think like in the beginning, a lot of it was like vision-based and now this semester we're actually putting down dates and times, dates and times that we know work for the majority of the people who are interested, which is really important. Um, and we're still working on it. Like I said, we're finishing up like a draft of our constitution, um, I guess, to submit for the, for it to be, I guess, conservative right. club for the application. And yeah, so I think like once a lot of the paperwork is sort of like turned in and framed, I think that in return can sort of like help define us better and sort of like the events that we're creating. Right. I'm interested in this notion of the writer's block Wednesdays. What does that entail? And why did that kind of begin the club as um, one of the first sort of events that you would hold regularly? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think like it's really nice to have a space to sort of like talk about art, but also like, you know, for artists or creators or writers, like it's just as important to have a space to produce that art that you're kind of mm. like talking about. So I think Timmy's idea behind like writer block Wednesdays was to have a space of people sort of like an affinity space of people who look like you who are creating similar things to you where you can sort of like take your um, personal things that you're working on whether it's like poems or art and kind of workshop with the others in the room you know if you feel comfortable for that it can also be a space where you just come and you just write and you don't necessarily have to workshop everything it's very flexible but I guess the idea was to offer an atmosphere that was really supportive and of course everyone defines support differently so whether I guess you find it I guess part of your writing process or you know yeah writing process to get feedback that can be a really helpful space for that or if you just kind of can't work on your own and you get motivated by having others around you and mm -hmm. I think the name is really cool Timmy came up with that name sort of like the idea of like having writer's block but also like having I guess yeah <laughs> B-L-O-C yeah that's nice yeah yeah absolutely um yeah and I think it speaks to this I also am curious about this um because you know, you've talked a lot about the importance of that intersectionality between being, yes, it's an interest club in art, but also being affinity-based, um, trying to create a safe haven specifically for black artists um, who share this identity. What, what sort of things do you try to provide in order to kind of satisfy both sides of that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, like, the good thing about Toba is that 
of course like black art is a term that's so expansive and that can mean anything so we have like a lot of people who are interested in regular attenders and people in our e-board too who sort of are coming from like a writer's perspective like wisdom or you know from Timmy's perspective as someone who's really into film and visual arts and then me as like a poet um I think like the idea that it's an affinity space but also we have people coming from so many different mediums of art is really helpful um I think that I guess it's interesting to sort of get advice from people who aren't necessarily in the same creative field as you. And I'm also forgetting part of the question, but the other part. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just like what sort of things do you provide in order to satisfy, you know, providing a safe space for both identity and for creation, I guess. Right. And also that I think in general, we try to do things like land acknowledgments and also sort of like providing I guess like historical context so for example this is Black History Month kind of like you said and um, I think we're definitely going to make sure the programming this month is like centered around providing people sort of like maybe like a historical framework um, to sort of like perform their work in or to workshop pieces in Um, I think definitely finding the balance between being like informative and like you know about the culture and just about like the idea of creating um and also just sort of like very forward like I guess forward thinking and sort of like creation so we don't necessarily want it to be a space where it's like people come in and they're sort of like lectured about the history of black art but also just like the context of it is still important yeah definitely I think yeah that idea of what is black art I think is really interesting um have you and Timmy, I don't know if you've like talked about this, but um, I mean, in trying to define it, how do you approach that? That's a really good um, I mean, it's a hard question. question. It's, it's a hard question. I think it reminds me of, I guess, like an art history course that I took here that was called like Black Art and Displacement. And my professor, she was from the Studio Museum in Harlem, and it focuses mm. on like the art of people of African descent. So that's how that museum, for example, defines black art. And I think you can definitely think about it in like a technical term where it's like it's art produced by black people Mm. um but i guess like the way that i think about it is that not only is it work produced by black people but i guess it's a notion that like even if you aren't necessarily creating art specifically related to your identity the fact that you are coming from that identity can makes it black art Mm. so i think it doesn't necessarily have to be about like the message or whatnot it's really just more so about the fact that this creation essentially came from someone, a member of the diaspora, so that art is sort of like embellic of it. Right, yeah, that that idea that identity is inherently mixed with creation. I, wa- I definitely want to come back to that. Um, but also just the fact that it's an, an, an art club, um, or like an, a creative club, um, something that comes up a lot in artistic circles in campus that I've been a part of is just how hard it is to find a space for creation in this highly urban campus at Columbia and maybe just the lack of attendance, which Columbia kind of pays to student artists in general. Um, And I think each various clubs on campus kind of approach this differently. Um, How, how do you approach just being a creative club and trying to make a space for art when there is so much other things happening in the city and um, you know, Columbia is such like an academic uh, oriented institution. That's a great question. I also, I mean, like even just being a New Yorker myself, like mm-hmm. it constantly feels like, I mean, the art scene, if there even is one concrete one in the city is like evolving and it's really hard to sort of like, I guess, I guess center yourself maybe as like a new entity or new org or club. Yeah. I mean like just the sp- like physical space is hard. I mean like it's, I've tried to like play music with friends and it's really hard. I've, mm. I talked to my friends who are like visual artists and it's hard to get access to materials the school isn't great at providing i mean just as an artistic club um you know how do you orient yourself in providing a space for creation specifically yeah i think kind of what you said space is definitely everything in new york and i think like the great thing about soba especially like with timmy and wisdom and i we're all coming from like different parts of campus Mm. um i know like whether it's like different orgs we're involved in or greek life um, like I myself, I'm coming from CSA and ADP, which is like another right. society, but it's a literary based um, society. And then Wisdom's coming from ASA and Postscripts. And I know Timmy's also coming from some other orgs as well. So I think the fact that we're able to sort of like leverage like those connections to those orgs and reach out for collabs and also space. I know the majority of Soba's events have been held at um, ADP's, um, I guess, Brownstone. And I think right. like I'm, the- I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. So I think that I get the idea of sort of like 
I guess establishing ourselves is very much based on like our own personal connections to space on campus and like utilizing those and making sure that like we're collabing with existing I guess frameworks that kind of like support mm. either the arts or affinity um, in sort of like trying to establish ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And on that idea of you know trying to establish yourself, you also brought up to be earlier um, that you're also looking beyond Columbia as um, a group. And I'm curious about what that means for SOBA and how you're going about that. Yeah, that's a great question. I know this is like Timmy's like main point too that he like sort of like strives to address. Um, something he's really passionate about is like outreach to the city, but specifically the Harlem area and whether that's like collaborating with artists from the Harlem area or just kind of like reaching out and providing. I know mutual aid is also one of like our principles that we're trying to work on. Um, I know, and we kind of like are thinking about like raising money or funds or capital, I guess, in the whatever capacity to potentially, I guess, then distribute or redistribute to like the Harlem area. I think like in general, we want to be connected with all parts of the city by kind of like acknowledging and recognizing the university's impact in sort of like Upper Manhattan, like Morningside Heights, Harlem. We definitely want to make sure those are the first places that we're thinking about reaching out to. So I think we're coming at it from like wanting to make sure that we're keeping up with the art scene in those neighborhoods and then also wanting to make sure that we're like financially, I guess, giving back to those neighborhoods since we're like sort of like seeking something from it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it is it's really interesting to think about um, how this is all situated just in New York. You know, we are really close to, you know, like the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston went to Barnard. It's it's really interesting. How do you think of that? Like, I guess, historical uh, adjacency. Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny that you brought up Zora Neale Hurston. I'm also a member of Boss, and she was like, um, oh, really? Yeah, she was a member of at Boss, which is like the Black Affinity Group at Barnard as well. And I think like recognizing, I guess like recognizing the fact that like a lot of, I guess like you said, artists like from the Harlem area, they've also had connections like to the university. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something like we're very well aware of. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think like potentially some of the things that were on our radar was like reaching out to alumni um, mm. who were in those scenes. So definitely like stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly don't have a concrete answer for that as we're sort of like workshopping, like what are the things we want to focus on this semester? But that is something really important that you brought up and something that we've definitely been thinking about a lot. Yeah, it is like, yeah, I definitely do also think about it. Um, just how adjacent we are to those movements. It's, it is pretty interesting. Um, and especially I do want to ask you a little bit about, um, it is Black History Month, uh, during February. Um, and just the idea of that how art can coincide with uh, how you form your identity and how it, it sort of gets mixed up together. Um, I guess, how do you approach that uh, in your life? That's a really good question. I think like a lot of the work, I guess, poems I write about, like they're usually like have motifs of like nature or race, but even in my poems that aren't explicitly like referencing race or anything like that, I always find that there's some symbolism there that kind of like ties back to like my identity as like an Afro-Caribbean person, whether I'm talking about like only like certain types of flowers that you can really only find in like the islands or things like that. I think in general, there's always just some element of my identity in the work I produce, whether intentional or not. And I kind of have just kind of like accepted that and embraced that as an artist. So I feel really comfortable branding like basically almost everything I produce is something that could fall under black art, even if that isn't, I guess, like the label that I'm like thinking of when I'm creating it. Um, and I know different people, I guess, grapple with it in different ways. There, of course, is the argument that as a black artist, because race is a social construct, like why does everything I create have to be considered like this black art? Like this is a label that I didn't even ask to like, you know, be born into. So I also see that argument as well. And I think like the great thing about SOBA is that it's a place to have discussions um, for that as well. Like again, back to the question of like, what is black art and like defining yourself as a black artist, the way I define it can certainly be different to the way that other people define it. Yeah, absolutely. That is a very interesting thought and it's it is really hard to reconcile that idea that how do you separate yourself from your art and it's like you know it's something that we're dealing with in a, a multitude of ways in uh the, the modern era but um yeah thanks so much for joining me today this has been a really great conversation uh if you're interested in finding more information you can find uh it at the society society of black artists at at society of black artists on instagram 
Um, yeah, what, what are you most looking forward to as the semester goes on? I'm definitely looking forward to some of the more official recognition we can get. And also kind of like you said, it's Black History Month. So some of the events that we have planned for this month, we're really excited about um, some of like our um, open mic um, events. So right. once do you know when the next uh, event is? Yeah, um, well, certainly we're still working on the date because mm-hmm. it's most likely going to be a collab with ADP, which is really right. great um, in regards to space. But um, once we have the event dates, it'll definitely be posted. But we're thinking mid-February. Awesome. We'll look forward to that. Um, and thanks again, Nick. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Josh. Once again, thank you to Anik uh, for talking with me. It was a really wonderful conversation. Uh, once again, if you're interested in learning more about the Society of Black Artists and their efforts, you can follow their Instagram handle at Society of Black Artists. We'll continue to cover Black History Month throughout the month of February, so make sure to stay tuned for the stories to come. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Monday Morningside here on WKCR. That's WKCR FM and WKCR HD. That's 89.9 on the dial here in New York City, as well as WKCR.org. Uh, my name is Josh Casale. I'm your host. Uh, the next segment we have is the Blue Jay, which is our collaborative segment with the Blue and White magazine. It's a magazine here on campus. Our reading this week is the Blue Note Depot of Silence, read by the writer uh, Adrian DeFaria, who's a first-year writer at the Blue and White. You can find the article online at thebluenwhite.org, uh, thebluenwhite.org. It's under the December issue. It's a really powerful piece that's about music and religion and how they coincide, as you'll hear from our intro music that I have added. I hope you enjoy. Uh, feel free to read along, and it's going to be a good segment. I hope you're all having a nice morning, and hope you enjoy. For today's Blue Jay segment... I have with me uh, first year Adrian DeFaria. How are you today, Adrian? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing good. Um, Adrian's piece is called Depot of Silence. It's a blue note uh, published in the most recent December issue of The Blue and White. Uh, you can find it at thebluenwhite.org, thebluenwhite.org. Um, it's in the December issue, and it's an excellent piece. I'm excited to read it with you, and uh, feel free to read along with Adrian. It took seven years of fighting before my spiritual yet stern atheist mother allowed my rebellious Roman Catholic father to baptize me. Too big to be picked up by the priest, I dunked my entire head in the basin as sacred organs rang through St. Bede's Church. My father had told me to just touch your head to it. This was the first time our definitions of holiness diverged. Underwater, I kept my eyes open and my breath baited, seeking some sign of the divine. Submerged in that cleansing bath, I remember the vibration of the organs most. Even as God waterlogged my ear canals, it cut through, strong and clear. I was not saved that day, but I was inspired by prayer without words. Maybe it was then that I fell in love with classical music. But that music wasn't just classical. It was charged with earnest devotion, distinct from any other sound I'd heard in my young life. The same sound struck me at St. Paul's Chapel, which runs sacred music, a concert series on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Each week, a musical artist from the greater New York City area suffuses the Byzantine interior with their sounds while Colombians filter in and out, playing musical chairs in the backmost row. Students come out of curiosity and stay for a study break, drawn to the serendipitous pocket of sanctity. This is no one-off miracle. It's the project of award-winning composer Julian Bennett Holmes, with whom I spoke on a Friday night after a sacred music concert. He's entrusted with arranging the series, a tradition that's been on and off for years. Holmes, who is also a doctoral candidate and instructor at the Manhattan School of Music, has been sacred music's coordinator since 2018. He speaks calmly and thoughtfully, with the distinction of someone who spends most of his time thinking about things bigger than himself. Quote, There has been music in this chapel, I'm sure, for the whole time the chapel has existed, since 1904, he said. 
He prioritizes making the program as diverse as possible, accommodating various religions and cultures. This fall, Sacred Music has shared with the community everything from MOVE, Spirituals for the Spiritual Journey, to Festival of Indian Music, Raga and Rhythm. Though the chapel's iconography is Christian, the music isn't rooted in a particular faith. Rather, it's curated to create a spiritual sonic haven. It's difficult to pinpoint what exactly drew a theologically spiteful agnostic like myself to the event. Perhaps it's the magnetism of the chapel, the sheer grandiosity of it. Of course, Columbia is a grand campus, aged colonnades, stoic bricks, a quad that will swallow you up before you can take a step. But Columbia is also loud. The sounds of New York ricochet across our 30 acres, performing a discordant concerto with stressed students' moans and the excess noise of two loud headphones. St. Paul's is a depot of silence. Even the wails of a violin, the thuds of a piano, or the simple patter of Doc Martens only remind me of the silence they're cutting through. Some people come to have a quiet time, or to meditate, or to pray, Holmes told me. He suggested that the experience of sacred music is different for everyone. Perhaps that's what makes it sacred, its power to cultivate a universal privacy. It creates a space for concurrent self-exploration and communion, for the convening of countless memories and motivations. So I sit, trying to slurp up the sacredness, as if each piano strike or violin stroke will cleanse me of my displacement. I sit admiring each turquoise and orange tile of the upper dome, hyperfixating on the oval skylights. It's a peculiar nostalgia. Despite my awareness of Catholicism's blind spots, despite the lack of holiness that confronted me at the bottom of the basin, religion is sewn into my skin. At St. Paul's, I remember the comfort and connection my father's family felt. I remember experiences I haven't lived. Our histories provide a warm blanket of explanation, manuals for how to proceed, for me, the knowledge that my ancestors sat in similar pews in a million cathedrals in a million cities is powerful solace. The organs still vibrate with clarity. They sound like voices of guidance. I will hide in my history and I will shine in individuality. Like a bird shedding its feathers, I'll chase my version of sacredness while remembering that of my family. Once again, that was Depot of Silence, written by Adrian DeFaria, who read it beautifully. Thank you. And um, you can find it on the Blue and White's website, theblueandwhite.org, as well as other blue notes and features from the December issue. Uh, it's a great issue. This is uh, your first your first article published in the Blue and White, correct? Correct. Yeah, and you are a first year? Yes. So I guess what drew you to write about this topic? I think. The way that you started with that piece from your childhood is really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I found sacred music um, at a time when I feel like I really needed a semblance of home. And as I said in the article, I'm not a religious person, but I do truly love classical music, especially because I'm a ballerina. So I listen to a lot of it and um, I understand it in sort of a different way that I think non-dancers do. Um, so during first semester when I was kind of wandering aimlessly around this unfamiliar campus I sort of just stumbled across sacred music and it was because our blue and white meetings actually happen in the basement of St. Paul's yes, so the first time that I ever went into St. Paul's was for my first blue and white meeting and I was like what is this this place is so beautiful and I was so confused because I was told to go to this chapel but nobody was there and I didn't know that there was a basement mm -hmm. and so I just walked in and sat for a second waiting for another blue and white person to come and guide me so I was just sitting here admiring this beautiful space. Um, and then finally someone came in and I saw them go to the basement and I followed. Um, <laughs> but as I was walking out that night, I saw they have a little poster sitting outside that says sacred music and a list of the concert dates. And it's every Tuesday and Thursday. So I put in my like Apple calendar a repeating event on Tuesday and Thursday nights oh, okay. for sacred music. Just so that I'd remember that like if I was feeling sad or unsure of where to go or lonely I'd have it there and so in the following weeks I just started going um I didn't have anything to do on those nights besides feel 
displaced really um first semester was pretty rough for me and so I just found this as like a communion of just patience and calm and being able to go there and just have someone take care of my thoughts for me almost yeah by playing this music and just like this incredible space that took me out of where I was and where what my current reality was it was a really powerful thing and so when I was thinking about what I wanted to write for the blue and white I originally had another idea something that was more of an expose but I didn't have enough time to work on it um it'll actually be published in March I didn't have enough time yeah stay tuned but I didn't have enough time to write in the first semester so I decided to do something a little bit more personal and a little bit more Columbia related and so this kind of fell into my lap it's it's a really nice piece and it is St. Paul's is such like a beautiful place um I think the first time that I was at, like, really in St. Paul's was for one of the sacred music events. And it is, it's really nice to just not only hear the music, but also be in the space. I mean, it's a really, really beautiful chapel. What was your first reaction upon, like, finding that space? Finding the space, I just felt like there's no way this is here on Columbia's campus um, in New York. This feels like I'm in Italy or something (laughs) Um, or at some historical monument and um, it just felt so steeped in history and tradition and I'm not usually again someone who likes tradition but I think there is this trend of people going away moving away from home going to college and going back to things that are so distinctly of where they came from whether they like it or not and it providing this like semblance of comfort yeah there is something very comforting and i think sacred music which to those of you who are listening can definitely take part in i think they're still doing it regularly yes it's a really exciting and powerful thing and it's also nice um i think the position that you take as for like how religious like the religiosity of it all Mm -hmm. i think the sacred music allows you to kind of have an entry point, kind of be in the space without committing to something as very serious as religious. It's 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 very welcoming. I I found as someone who's also not particularly religious, um, I still felt comfortable and welcome to listen to the music, which I think is really valuable. Yeah, um, I think music really is for everyone. Um, I'm in music humanities right now. Um, I got right. super lucky as a freshman, yeah. but. We've been talking a lot about music in spiritual settings, specifically Catholic or Christian ones, because we start in the medieval age. And a lot of what people were writing about, even in the 1400s, was how music was almost like dangerous in its like divinity Mm -hmm. um, and how it lured people in. And it was almost like it, it rode the line between holiness and sin. Because it spoke to people in a way that was just so unlike any word or sermon. Right. And I think that still carries today. Like music is does not have a language. We can all hear it and enjoy it and it'll make us feel almost similar things. Um and then on the point of spirituality, I was reading Bell Hooks the other day, all about love. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's read that. It's of course people have read it. What am I saying? Um, it's a wonderful book and it's just her basically talking about love for 300 pages or something and she has this great chapter on um, love and spirituality being linked but one of her primary points is that spirituality is for everyone and spirituality investing in it is a form of love mm. and that love itself is a practice of spirituality and when she discusses spirituality she doesn't specifically mean like Christianity or Buddhism She just means like a connection to something bigger than you. Mm. And I think for me, that's what classical music does. And that's what I was trying to convey in this article or not even classical music, just music in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Also, we do certainly have a home for classical music here at WKCR. I don't think you've seen the library. I'll show you the library. We have like a a very large selection. And just a few weeks ago, um, we do it every year between Christmas and New Year's, basically. we do just Bach music, um, you know, we play that straight, uh, which is exciting for a lot of people. It's a chance to really sort of immerse themselves in music that, you know, it's not maybe not often listened to by mm-hmm. a lot of people. And there is something still very powerful that 
is conveyed in the music even after hundreds of years um which is i think another powerful thing about classical music i used to did you ever play classical music actually no but um my brother is an incredibly talented pianist mm. and so growing up my house was always filled with piano and i think that definitely had an impact on me um i also think it's worth noting like classical music tends to be this thing regarded as something of the elite yeah and i just think that's not true um or it doesn't have to be true even if it historically has been um yeah i feel like that's just worth acknowledging but yeah, no, i totally agree. i did play cello for a year in fourth grade and mm. there's this really hilarious picture of me standing at a good four feet tall with a giant cello <laughs> on my back and like a scarf and a starbucks bag it was like 6 a.m i had to get to school by seven f- or six i think for cello practice and i remember telling my mom after a year i was like i hate this please take me out of it so i didn't like playing but i liked listening i think you're totally right though about it being generally thought of as the elite but it is like a very pure experience i think that can be pretty generally appreciated yeah i think people think sometimes that classical music is inaccessible but you might just need to be in the right setting for it like whether Mm. it be hearing it in a different way because you're dancing to it you're doing ballet or when you're in a chapel and you are transported to this place of just someone's sacredness, even if it's not yours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we're running out of time, but um, thank you so much for reading your piece. It was of course, very it was a pleasure. Um, and definitely check out Adrian's future work on the blue and white. Um, and uh, good luck with the rest of your semester. Thank you so much. Thanks to Adrian for reading that piece. It was a very beautiful piece um, and a lovely conversation as well. Uh, sacred music concerts are at St. Paul's Chapel at Columbia University, which is uh, on the Amsterdam side, uh, one, about 117th in Amsterdam. And they're also streaming on YouTube. You can look them up. Uh, there are no tickets or reservations required, and the concerts are free and open to all. The next one is Thursday the 9th at 6 p.m. Uh, it's... Gail Archer playing Polish organ music. And it's uh, a great experience. I've been before. That's definitely something to check out. Uh, well, you have access to it here in the Morningside Heights area. Um, yeah, thanks again for that reading. We're excited to bring more blue and white readings. I think there's a February issue coming up for Valentine's Day next week. And we're also going to bring other uh, various publications on campus. Uh, I've been talking to the people from Quarto, who is, which is a literary magazine here on campus, and we're going to be bringing stuff from that. So definitely stay tuned for more readings of not just uh, journalism, but poetry, short fiction, etc. It's going to be exciting. And uh, for our last segment, I have uh, excited to bring back Ferris of the Mall, hosted by Lex and Lucas. It is now 9.13 in the morning here in New York City. You're listening to WKCR-FM New York. That's WKCR HD and 89.9 on the dial here in New York City, as well as WKCR.org online. Now for Ferris of the Mall. Hope you've enjoyed Monday Morningside, and uh, have a good morning. Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Lex. And welcome back to the first episode of this semester of Who's the Ferris of the Mall? We're here at Ferris Booth Commons Dining Hall, the only open dining hall on campus. And we're here to see who's the Ferris of them all. We're here with... Billy. Billy, what brings you to Ferris at 8, 10 in the morning? Uh, I got class uh, at like in a little bit, so I've got to go, you know, eat breakfast, got to get, gotta get fuel for the day, you know? What class? A Quechua. Do you like Quechuan? Quechua? Quechua. It's good. It's good. It's real good. It's at NYU, um, and people are, it's like real nice down there, but it, it does take a while to get down there, which is why I'm here earlier. Do you have to take the one down? Yes. Do you like that you get to pretend to be an NYU student for a little while? Oh, I love it. Yeah, you get discounts, and the people are, it, it's crowded, but it's like, it's fun. It's another energy. For the listeners at home, what is Quechua? 
Quechua is an indigenous language from Peru. It was what the Incans spoke. And could you say something to us in Quechua? Um, Nyoka Kani Billy. What does that mean? It means I am Billy. <laughs> All right, changing topics. Billy, what are you getting today? I'm getting an omelet with uh, spinach, bell peppers, mushrooms, and turkey. Is that what you always get? Hell yes. Would you recommend it? I would, yeah. Great. One last question. Do you have any advice for the listeners at home? Could be about anything. Um, get here early. and But, like, get here between 7.30 and 8, because I feel like those are when the two rushes are. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Billy. For sure. Hi, we're here with... Safia. Safia, what brings you to Ferris this early in the morning? I'm here to get an omelet. What are you getting in your omelet? I get spinach, peppers, onions, turkey, and cheese. I basically don't want to taste the egg. Is that what you always get? Yep. I just, I just started eating omelets, like, literally, like, a week ago. Congratulations. <laughs> this is exciting. Would We're, you recommend that someone start eating omelets from Ferris? Um, I think if you put enough salt and pepper on them and, like, fill them up enough with, like, the ingredients, yeah. So at that point, it's, like, kind of a salad, sort of? I Maybe. guess, I guess. I'm just not into eggs, really, so it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, where are you going after this? Um, I have to shower really quickly. I have a class uh, in 22 minutes, so we'll see if I make it. Um, yeah. What, what class? It's applied linear regression. No, applied categorical data analysis. Say it one more time. <laughs> applied categorical data analysis. How do you like applying whatever thing that is? <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> and what do you major in? Uh, poly science statistics. Very cool. And one last question. Do you have any advice for the listeners at home? About anything. <laughs> any advice at all? Um, listen to the news every morning and then like incorporate podcasts in your life. Because it like seems like a, you know... It like I don't know. It's a, I, I like doing that because I listen. Otherwise, I just listen to music like twenty four seven, which is probably not. <laughs> that's no, that's good, advice. good advice. And a great time to mention that WKCR is available as a podcast. <laughs> yeah, Monday morning side available on Spotify. <laughs> Hi, we're back. We're now in the upstairs part of Ferris Dining Hall, and we're here to do the Ed review. Um, Jumping right in. Um, why don't we start with the eggs? Visually today, the eggs are. Striking. They are easily yeah. the pebbliest they have ever been. Like, truly pebbly, dry, and like ranging in sort of. I take it back. Color. Not pebbly, gravelly. Gravelly, yeah, they're larger. Like, yeah. On that triangle of sediment, they're like really in a corner. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to just sort of draw our, re- our listeners' attention to two other facets of the eggs. The first of which was that they were the driest they've ever been. There was no liquid in the bottom of the pan, none whatsoever. No egg water. No egg water. Um, and the second was just that the color was very inconsistent. Like, mm-hmm. some of them were this very light, pale yellow. And yes, from the whitest whites to the deepest browns. <laughs> Every color is represented in these eggs. And... Um, with that in mind, we're going to yeah. try to sort of sample... Sort of piebald. <laughs> I, I don't know what that word means. Like, I think, like, dappled. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I'm going to think about it only in the context of these eggs forever, so... Okay, I cheers. hope it's right. Um, Lex visibly winced on eating these. It was, yeah, a, sh- a, 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 a shiver. You know, sort of from my soul. They're bad. They're like, normally they're like not good. They're bad. Today they are bad. I, I bit into one of the, the brown bits because I felt like we should get sort of a consistent mm-hmm. neutral selection and it was sort of tough. It, um, um, it had a little bit of bite to it. I um, selected one of the paler sort of, um, I don't know, agglomerations and it was sandy in texture it fell apart in my mouth and into sand um all right i mean, we need to move on to the next thing so that yeah. i can have a new taste in my mouth um let's go to the uh potato patty okay now the potato patty today also is interesting 
Normally they always look exactly the same. Today they are a different shape. They are flatter and like wider than yeah. they normally are. And also much darker in color. What would you say they're about the size of? <laughs> if you had to come up with like an approximate. A softball? Thing. But obviously they're nothing like the shape of a softball. No, it's, there aren't really a lot of things that are flat in this size, but maybe like a uh, first generation iPod. I don't remember that size. the size of the first generation iPod, but if you told me it was this size, I would believe you. It's about that size. Um, um, so yeah, they're about the size of a first generation iPod. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone remembers what that was like, but about that big and we'll give them a taste. Crunchy. Sweet. Sweet? Not sweet, but like... Mine was not sweet. They were like good, is maybe what I'm going for. Yeah, like, but maybe not... less good than typically. No, I think these are better than typical. Really? Yeah, I kind of like this. It's, it's really crunch forward in a way that I think is good for the It potatoes. is crunch forward. That's true. I think it's fine. It's maybe less flavorful than it sometimes is. That's also true. But um, yeah. definitely not like much worse. Okay, anyway. Like as always, the potatoes are the most consistent yeah. part of but the Ferris main line. I think it is, it's worth saying that normally we have nothing new to say about the potatoes. Today yeah. they are actually different. Yeah, yeah. All right, now we're going on to the sausage patties. Which are about the size of a first generation iPad, uh, iPod <laughs> Nano. <laughs> They're good. Yeah, the same. They're neither too... They're neither like especially greasy nor especially dry. Yeah. Um, very salty as usual. And less spice than They're than not normal. particularly spicy, yeah. They're like yeah. exactly, I think, the middle of the road for yeah. a sausage patty. But that's like, like a good sausage. It's middle of the road just in terms of no extreme Oh, yeah, facet. not like mediocre, just like. Like a very high quality normal. sausage patty. I don't know about very. Uh, on the scale of Ferris. Like, okay, fine. Like all of, like, none of this has anything to do with like real food. Yeah, true. You know. All right, we're going on to the biscuit. Mine is quite wet in an exciting way. Mine is also very wet, but only on the bottom. Mm-hmm, only on the bottom. This is delicious today. Yeah, really, really good. Um, mm -hmm. All right, and that concludes the egg review portion of our show. Yeah, now we're gonna move on to our next segment. This morning, we've already heard what a lot of different people here at Ferris Dining Hall are eating, but now it's time to hear what's eating Lucas. So tell us, Lucas, what's eating you? This is a little bit of a blade thing that's been eating me, but um, we have a new president here mm -hmm. at Columbia University. Um, and, and let us be the first <laughs> to, to offer a, our warmest welcome. Yeah. Congratulations to President Shafiq, and we want to personally, right now, mm -hmm. actually invite her very cordially and formally, on to Ferris of them all. Yeah, to Ferris Dining Hall any time or place, we will be there. Just so long as the place is Ferris Dining Hall and the time <laughs> is between 8 and 9 in the morning on Mondays. Exactly. Um, but any time or place. <laughs> yeah, as long as, as, it's, long as it's that time and that now. place. Um, well, a lot of people were complaining that she's like a baroness. Like, that was like, a, I feel like I heard a lot of people be like, oh, she's a baroness, like, that's so whatever, elitist and wrong and... Yeah, maybe as part of the, like, Nepo baby discourse that yeah. was happening last week or whatever. Yeah, which, I, I, don't, I don't think she's a Nepo, but maybe she is. I, Who's I honestly, to say? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I think it's stupid that everyone complained about her being a baroness, because it's not like she was, like, born into it. Like, like they gave it to her for being, like, good at her job in England, and that's, like, a thing that people do in England. Yeah, totally. It's, like, <clears throat> if you're, like, a really, like renowned person in, and your career is in England, the queen might give you a... Yeah. Well, I don't actually know. What's, what's a baroness's... Do they have land? Baroness. I, I think it's, like, honorary. I think she has a place that she's a baroness of. But it's, like, probably some random village or town or something. That's I don't think awesome. she got, like, a house out of it. Is she married? <laughs> well, well, if there's an open position for baron, <laughs> let me be the first to cordially <laughs> offer. Yeah, um... Yeah. Well, let's just let's have her on the show for and we'll see. Okay, so we'll, yeah, uh, let's, I'll walk that back. I'll, I would yeah. like to issue a retraction. Yeah. Let's, one step at a time. Yeah. Sorry, I got overeager. Yeah. We're really trying to become barons. Mm -hmm. um, it's a new life goal of ours. Mm -hmm. um, as of right now. As of right now. Yeah, like, like Paul McCartney is Sir Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. Like he's like 
a night. Like, it's just, it's just like a goofy, futile thing that they do, and I feel like it's not a big deal. And any, any criticism of that ought not, like, lie with her. Yeah. Right. It's mm-hmm. not, like, her fault that she, like, had her career in England. It's, like, yeah. whatever. It's, like, what, like, if you don't like that there are still barons in the world. Yeah. Like, that's a problem with, like, the, the crown. <laughs> you should take it up with the crown. Yeah. So, please direct any letters to... <laughs> to um, 1 Buckingham Palace. <laughs> 1600 Buckingham Avenue. <laughs> That's gotta be right. Yeah, I'm sure. 1601 Pennsylvania Avenue. Exactly. And I'm sure, like, sort of like a letter to Santa, if you, like, scrawl it in crayon on your letter, they'll just send it to the right person. Like, True. they know who you're, who you're sending your letter to. If you just write Santa. You don't need stamps, also. Really? To write a letter to Santa. That's so great of the U.S. Postal Service. I don't actually know that you don't, don't need stamps. What you do maybe they, do need a stamp. I don't know. No, I bet that you don't need a stamp, but I don't know what they do with a letter to Santa. They give it to Santa. For, for, Sorry, for the purposes silly, of... Silly me. They what? give it to Santa. For anyone listening yeah. and on their commute to work or school. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, all right. Now, moving into the final segment of our show, in which we elect one of our interviewees as this week's fairest of them all. After much deliberation, I think we're going to go with um, Safia because she has started eating omelets for the first time. And mm-hmm. for us, that's just exciting and thrilling. Also, she's listening to podcasts for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, she really she maybe is listening to this podcast for the first time. No, but um, I do think that like that really embodies the spirit of Ferris Dining Hall to me. Yeah. Now to have a thing that you do is eating omelets, <laughs> even though you do not like eggs. Yeah. That to us certainly, if maybe more than anything else. Yeah, maybe the, the fairest of them all. Full stop. Full, yeah. Um, yeah, to be announced. But anyway, yeah. so thank you to Safia and also to Billy for great interviews. Yeah. And um, we'll be back with you all next week. Thanks, as always, to Lex and Lucas for getting the scoop. Uh, they do that segment on a slight delay just from earlier this morning. They're real troopers for waking up that early, being in the dining hall when very few are. Um, and that's the end of our show. Uh, that was, once again, it is Monday, February 6th. It's now 9.26 in the morning. Next up is Serial Music, hosted by Stefan. Um, hope you've all had a lovely morning, and uh, take care.